0: Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbele, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. You can get more Biota Podcasts at biota.org slash podcast. Now, we have our first caller, so I'm going to pick up the first caller. Hello, first caller. Hello there. Are you calling in via landline or via Skype? We have Gerald Jong calling in from the Netherlands.
1: I'm calling in with Skype.
0: Terrific. Terrific. So, Gerald, just, uh, just to bring you up to speed with the process. I have a few uh, news and notes to get on with and then we'll get into the, the main discussion, although you may have something to add to the news and notes as well. So, um, For folks listening to this in the podcast, every Friday night at 8pm uh, Pacific, Pacific, we hold a live radio show called Biota Live where we discuss topics in artificial life and today As a first test, but possibly a monthly habit uh, for the first Saturday of the month, we hold a 10 a.m. Pacific call-in to allow folks such as Gerald de Jung, whose Project Darwin at Home has been discussed in previous podcasts, to call in and participate. Now, next week's show at 8 p.m. Pacific on Friday is going to be with regards to books to the Internet and the idea that folks such as myself and Gerald and other folks that have participated in these podcasts previously got their primary sources for artificial life information through books probably more than a decade ago. And now the best way to get artificial life information, primarily because there aren't books published, or so many books published on Artificial Life currently, is through the internet. So we're going to discuss the change and transition from books to the internet and whether books will be in the future what they have been in the past in terms of Artificial Life developer inspiration. In addition to this, GreySum News, as announced last night, there is going to be a Graysome London meeting. Wednesday, 20th of February, we're still getting a location, and I will announce the location when we have it. For other folks listening to this live, you can call in. It's the U.S. number, 646-200-0640. We're looking for all participants. I'm sorry, I forgot to open the chat window. The chat window is now opening, so if folks are eagerly waiting to participate in the chat, you can get to the chat through biota.org, Slash podcast. There's a link through to the blog talk radio site where folks can join the chat and ask questions if they don't want to make a U.S. call. Now, Gerald, you timed your call particularly well because I was also going to discuss briefly uh, Dick Gordon's book, which Bruce and I have been working on for, I guess, the past maybe six or seven weeks. And it's quite an eclectic group of folk who normally wouldn't actively communicate. Uh, There are creationists and intelligent design folk and journalists and biologists and geologists and uh, a wide variety of folk gathering together in a single book to discuss a wide variety of topics. Um, Gerald, I know this is a a particular passion of yours. Um, Would you be interested in participating in such a book? Why not? Well, I'm gathering folks that are interested to pass back to Dick Gordon. He sent a request out recently to have more folks involved with the dialogue. As I said last night, I have participated or in the process of participating in three dialogues so far. Uh, The diversity of folk that are involved, I'm currently uh, participating in a dialogue with a creationist who is talking about computer programming languages versus spoken languages as a proof for intelligent design, quite a, an interesting paper to critique. Where does one begin? Um, I've also participated in dialogue with some astrobiologists who are extremely positive, astrobiologists verging on panspermians, which um, filters into the Brig-Kleiss discussion in the previous... Uh, I don't know, when did we interview Brig? Gerald, do you remember? Was it June last year? It was in that kind of time frame, maybe June even the year before. Um so these kind of folks, and I'm also in a dialogue with Dick Gordon himself about the way to communicate science, uh, particularly in a heavily polarized, uh, you know, one particular group, intelligent design creationists. And one of the curious things in this dialogue with Dick is that I propose that intelligent design as it is currently, Cattle I, Cattle D intelligent design represented in a wide variety of creationist institutes, probably wouldn't agree with grassroots creationist beliefs, so we really are in that level of deconstruction currently. It's quite an interesting project in terms of bringing folks together that normally wouldn't be in communication and normally would avoid communication at all costs in some regards, so I've got to say hats off to Dick Gordon with regards to this book. Now, the number to call in for folks who are interested in participating, it's a U.S. number, six four six two zero zero 0640, and there is also a chat room for folks who don't want to call in to the US but want to participate. Last night, there were a number of folks in the chat room, and they contributed a number of interesting questions, particularly with regards to logo and students' programming and getting artificial life into education and these kind of questions. But the topic for today is artificial life for the next decade, which could go in a number of different directions. I know, Gerald, you have a particular topic that you'd like to discuss. So, as you've called in via Skype, why don't you why don't you open up the discussion with your particular view? Oh, uh,
1: about uh, about artificial life, uh, or what exactly do you mean?
0: Well, the idea that the name is part of the problem.
1: Yeah, well, <clears throat> I'm not sure it's it's necessarily part of the problem. It's just that uh, um, when when you say artificial life, it's like you're uh, you're creating life but it just happens to be artificial, and I'm not sure it deserves the name uh, life because uh, it, it's, it depends on what you mean by life, but you can really sort of water down the meaning of life pretty easily if you say uh, uh, this little program that I wrote where uh, you know there's a bunch of uh, simulated individuals uh, interacting with each other in a, a sort of a, an ecosystem that kind of stays in balance, uh, and this is life, uh, you know, it, it really it really weakens the idea of what what life is i
0: suppose do you feel the same way with regards to artificial intelligence and intelligence
1: um not so much because intelligence is is not uh you know it's something that's uh, a much stricter definition uh, intelligence is uh, you know we've had things like the the turing test to to determine intelligence and stuff like that so there's i wouldn't say artificial intelligence is as uh it's not watering down the idea of intelligence as much.
0: So we have, I believe, Justin Lyon calling in from the UK. Hello?
2: Hello, how are you doing?
0: Hey, welcome back, Justin. So I'm not sure how much of the conversation you've heard to date, but Gerald did email me prior to uh, this radio show, a couple of days ago, in fact, with regards to the idea that the term artificial life, in some degree, uh Depreciates the term "life" primarily. Uh, I have my own views with regards to that, but w- what is your thinking in terms of the term "artificial life" being problematic, Justin?
2: Uh, well, I'd like to obviously hear a little bit more of why he feels it's problematic before I would comment on that. I, I would imagine. Well, why do you think it's a bit problematic? Okay.
1: Well, the I mean, the whole idea is uh, is basically that life is is something that is. Uh, uh, you know, quite, quite special. It's not, it's not something you find on every planet and it's not something that, uh, you know, it, it's quite bizarre that it all came about by, uh, by the process of evolution through so much time. And, and then, you know, if someone, um, gets on the computer and spends a couple of years or, or months or whatever, um, you know, building some sort of synthetic ecosystem or some sort of, uh, you know, population of creatures that interact with each other. And then they say, this is life. It just happens to be artificial. It seems to me a very, um, you know, it's, it's such an extremely limited form of life. If you can even call it that at all, that it, it to, to say artificial life sort of waters down the idea of life. And well, I, well, I, I see what you, go
2: ahead. go ahead. Sorry,
0: Justin. Go
2: What I was going to say is that, uh, I respect that and I, I mean I had this come up when I gave my talk in Santa Monica California to the executives and, and someone asked me the question well you know how do you define life and my comeback was well bacteria which doesn't have any sort of higher order consciousness is a form of life so yes artificial life as it's currently practiced might be a relatively minor form of life in the sense that it, you the know, same way that 4.2 billion years ago the bacteria that was you know, crawling around earth was minor but it's this, it's the sign that we can't actually create these sorts of things and then over time start to see them emerge uh, into actual potentially higher order life forms could
1: could we uh, take a, a few minutes and and try and figure out what the uh, yeah what 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 the characteristics would be what are what are the things that how, how do we judge something to be either artificial life or not? I mean, you can take, uh, for example, uh, a simple cellular automaton like, uh, like Conway's Life. That also also used the name life, of course. But you know, it's it's an extremely extremely simple system, as as I'm sure you all know.
0: Certainly, Gerald. If I can just interrupt you, we have another caller, and then we will resume. To uh, let's see if the other caller. Oh, it's Jeffrey. Oh, hello, Geoffrey. Hello. Hi. I'm not sure how much of the conversation you've heard I'll today, just apologies. It. apologies to folks in the podcast as well who are hearing the, the conversation mm. being restated. Um, but Gerald asked uh, an interesting question, which I think leads into my comment back to Gerald, with regards to what the qualities of life are, with regards to the very basic um, early artificial life uh, developments, Conway's Artificial Life for example Uh and what what I, in correspondence with Gerald, what I said back to Gerald was that artificial life should be thought of as as a whole and proper name, that it is in fact a descriptive term that in fact refers to a wide variety of things which we now to date you know may consider doesn't really represent what life is but what we are doing here is in fact forming some kind of uh, collective discourse amongst the practitioners of this thing that we're calling artificial life. Now, another interesting thing that I, another interesting point that I made back to Gerald before I'll go back to talking about Conway, is the idea that if we have the mechanism to change the name, for example, about three years ago, we discussed the idea of artificial nature being a better descriptive term for what we were doing with biota, if we could convince the broader public of this, I mean, this is the nature of a proper name, if you can change the proper name in in popular culture, if you can get people to all agree upon yeah. using the new term, then you've actually done a lot of really productive good. I think for the artificial, the contemporary hobbyist artificial life community, if I wanted to <clears> draw, <throat> draw that kind of sphere around a group of people, would be in a much better place if they could actually communicate what this thing was that was whatever new term we pick, artificial nature, uh, digital ecology, whatever you want to call it. Now, what's interesting as well is in parallel to talking about the future, we have Craig Ventner talking about a particular aspect of what some of us may want to call synthetic biology, what some of others may want to call wet artificial life, Mm -hmm. who is pumping out in a kind of two-weekly to monthly time cycle press releases, which go out into the Associated Press and the broader science media saying, I am developing artificial life, this is what it is, it is uh, synthetic biology, this is what the term means now. So mm-hmm. in that context, what Gerald is talking about in terms of a renaming may actually be very pertinent because we may need to actually find a new mm-hmm. name to distinguish ourselves from uh, from what Craig
3: Ventner is doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that totally makes sense. Um,
1: my, the... my impression, of, oh, sorry, my impression of what uh, what vendor is doing is is that that would be uh, you know basically a legitimate usage of the of the phrase, um, because you know it, it's it's something that is made by people, but it very much resembles life because it's actually made from the same building blocks.
3: But is it actually functioning as life or simply molecular pieces of life?
1: I don't know. I, I'm not exactly sure what it's doing, but uh, my uh, my proposal for the uh, for the actual name of what we're doing, um, I thought of a while ago, and I think it still makes sense. Is uh, is simulated life? Because if you're you know you're simulating, simulated, then yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Jeffrey, what would you call uh, the stuff that you've been building for for so many years? Would you well, call if, it
3: life? Uh, I I think pe- people call it artificial life because that's the that's the easy. The easy buzzword to call it, but I, I, I tend to try to stay away from that as well because it's one of those terms that has that carries too many connotations and and uh, I, I like to call it simulation, um, because I think that's the that uh, I think that's a better term. And, and um, Tom,
1: is- you as you as well call your your system a, a simulation?
3: No, I, I think
0: you you have the majority. I'm waiting for Justin's casting vote whether or not we will continue to call it Artificial Life, or whether we will adopt your new name. Justin, what's your thoughts?
2: I, I rather like Artificial Life, but then again, I like being bold and somewhat additional in some ways. And I think that if you, if you look at Craig Ventor's comments, all he's doing is creating a synthetic chromosome, a sequence of DNA, and he's, and he's calling something as trivial as that, life. Um, and having cloned a gene myself, I know that it's it's huh. non-trivial but not completely impossible what he's talking about. And I think the things that we're doing with you know, silicon is is a different type of artificial life. Maybe it's not carbon-based in the sense of like you know TACG and all that, but it's it is it is very uh, compelling, and therefore I think we should call it life. No, uh, I think I think we have
0: the- sorry, we have a comment what? from Matt in the chat who says that. Steve Grand made a distinction between artificial life and A-life. So I think uh, Matt is making the point that perhaps A-life may be considered an additional term. And, uh, I mean, uh, as a minor point of consideration, I always like Steve Jobs' logic with regards to Apple Computer appearing earlier in the phone book than uh, Microsoft, for example. (laughs) So let's throw A-life in as a possible term as well. Gerald? Yeah,
1: I'd go for that. I like the, I like the term A Life.
0: Okay. So if we if we have A Life colon simulated life as a possibility, now this begs the question in terms of the next decade and I'm going to talk a little bit with regards to Microsoft as well because I think if Microsoft, through what they're already trying to do with artificial intelligence and robotics, makes the next logical sequence that they have simulated environments with uh, intelligent agents moving through it, maybe they should start developing uh, similar kinds of roads into artificial life that they're currently making with the AI and robotics community. This would also dramatically change the landscape with regards to what we're doing currently. So in, in that view, Gerald... What's your own thinking with regards to the the current position of A-Life development and the potential to move forward in the next decade? What do you see as the obstacles and what do you see as the possible rewards?
1: Um, well one thing that, that really struck me uh, uh, about a half year ago was when I was talking to some people and uh, about um, robotics and uh, and then after that I listened to several episodes of uh, talking robots from uh, from Switzerland that uh, podcast and uh, one thing that, that really struck me was the idea of embodiment that um, you know to really work out whether Uh, something is behaving in some sort of lifelike way, it has to be independent, it has to be sensing things, and it has to be living in the real world.
3: Essentially, it has to not be a simulation.
1: Yeah, in a way, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you realize when the more you play around with, you know, virtual environments where you're simulating the physics and everything, if, if you if you busy yourself with simulating physics, you know how humble you have to be because uh, mm-hmm. it's just not—it's just not fair, you know. You don't get to nearly do as much math as as the universe does when when it calculates the uh, the you know the quantum states of the uh, countless atoms around mm-hmm. you. So so it's you know it's it's to such an extreme degree fake. Um, and, and so extremely limited, and you're spending much of the computing time actually, you know, pretending that there's a space that, that something is moving around in, um, whereas there have been examples of extremely, extremely simple, um, you know, robotic systems that have, uh, you know, like three transistors or whatever, and they... Uh, you know they they go towards the light and when they're tired they go and charge up and things like that you know they've mm-hmm. simple behavior uh, based on you know just just the smallest number of silicon uh, you know elements and and because of the embodiment because of the simple fact that you know there are cameras and it's trying to uh, or you know, light sensors and it's trying to to you know sense things and 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 uh, move around and things like that it's just it's a world of difference when you when the universe that your creatures are operating in is real
3: yes right it's almost like a whole different category of artificial life
1: yeah and it it, it almost doesn't seem you know it's it's kind of strange that it's so different but it really is and that's what struck me an embodiment when you actually have the uh, the creature in the real world it's so different than uh, in in a simulated world.
0: So we have some comments from the chat from uh, Bob Mottram, long-time Biota listener, and also Steve Grand, devotee, who we hope to have in a future interview podcast, and Arthur Vanderbilt talking about robotics, that physics comes for free, which is just echoing what uh, Gerald was saying. We are really here talking about hard artificial life. In terms of the distinctions between Mm -hmm. wet, soft, and hard, um, is, is this generally thought of with regards to the participants, Justin? Do you think of these distinctions?
2: Uh, I agree, absolutely, in terms of the distinction between you know, the simulated environment that exists completely in cyberspace, so to speak, versus you know wet artificial life we're actually building things, versus what Gerald, I think it was Gerald that was talking about, the idea of you know, these three or four transistors connected together that kind of mimic life in the real world.
3: Can I was talking
2: about the guy in Santa Fe that did that. Or there's another, in Los Alamos.
3: There's another distinction that that I think is very interesting, and that is another kind of real real environment, and that is the internet, the um, the network of intelligent people uh, tapped into the internet and forms of life. They're not living in the in the world of real physics, but they're living in the world of real information, um, and there are certain adaptive agents that can. Be a part of that, whether they're web crawlers or actual Tierra lifeforms that move around. Um, and I'm wondering if if anybody has if anybody's thought about that as another um,
1: category. That that makes me immediately think of Tom Ray's stuff, where he actually created you know uh, you could call them sort of replicating creatures that were you know native to the simulated environment they, without without any notion of physics, of course. Right. I mean. It, the, the thing The thing about real life and you know the the universe that we actually live in we've got uh, we've got space to deal with and if you simulate space, then you come across some really surprising uh, disadvantages in in that, that you have to deal with and and the fact for example, there's no such thing as proximity really. Mm-hmm. You know, the proximity is something that you you have to do a lot of work to make sure that, mm-hmm. it, that it seems like it's working correctly. You know, there's a, any kind of collision. That's a huge amount of work to do that, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas in the real world, it's just, you know, it's free. And so Tom Ray's stuff, where he actually had uh, creatures that that lived in memory, and they didn't have a you know any any kind of three dimensional physics or anything like that. Their their job was to replicate themselves. That seems like you know a native, and that was his argument as well. Like this is this is native to the silicon environment.
2: Right. So both. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Sorry, I I just want to read out the chat to get folks participating in the chat as well. Bob Bottram is making a point that if one were to abstract all these things, there is something that is quintessentially about living processes that maybe the artificial life study is with regards to. So I think he's concerned that we're getting overly bogged down in the kind of applied end of things when really um, we should talk a little bit more about the shared components of wet soft, hard, and potentially, Jeffrey has coined a new term, internet artificial life uh, today. So what, what is the kind of collective thoughts? I'll start with Justin with regards to this.
2: Well, okay, well, with respect to, I, I'm not sure I quite follow all the logic here, but from my perspective, if you have an artificial life that exists in the computer, uh, in the form of an ecosystem so it's it's contained within a walled environment, if you will and there's the whole issue around how do you get virtual creatures from one environment one virtual ecosystem into another one without that, they're really constrained to that environment. It'd be like taking a, an animal from a you know a, a, an off-world planet and trying to put it on earth it just would not survive. so the idea of creating like evolving viruses, for example, I know there's been a lot of work with DHS on that um, or um, the idea of, I, I just really strongly argue that if you develop a life form inside the computer, it's still as much of a life form, even though it isn't based on uh, what humans are based on or animals are based on. It's still in my mind, at least. Mm-hmm. But I, I would be willing to argue whether or not that that is the case or not. I, I, there's some very good points that are being made tonight, so it's it's challenging me. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: native creatures like uh, Tom Ray's, um, you know, they they... I would find it easier to consider them to be like internet life. Um, but whenever you uh, whenever you introduce you know space and movement in space to make it sort of more familiar to uh, to us, mm-hmm. then uh, then it's uh, you know it's a, a, a lot of smoke and mirrors, and you really don't get to uh, you know the simulation is not anywhere you know within millions of orders of magnitude close to what's actually happening in. <coughs> in life so it just seems so far-fetched
0: in terms of bob mottram's point if we take all these aspects that we're describing as artificial life and i think what you're saying gerald as well as throwing in real life as well real life organisms into that is there some um, shared uh, philosophical or theoretical component that can come from the development and study of all these aspects of artificial life I'll, I'll put this question to Jeffrey first.
3: Oh, I, I, I believe there is, and that's that's why all of these things tend to be called artificial life. There are certain um, shared uh, aspects of all of these things, um, and uh, perhaps it's the it's the functional aspect of artificial life which separates it, abstracts it from the biological, the carbon water based. Um, and uh, so sort of these abstract notions that we can talk about, perhaps, that have that all of these things have in common.
1: So what, what are exactly the common elements? I mean, the things that I think of is like, uh, you know, evolution processes, survival of the fittest is something that, that's been sort of central to what I've been doing. But um, that's not necessarily uh, the, the only focus. You can also think in terms of um, sort of metabolism you know, uh, or ecosystem or metabolism.
3: Sure. We all pick our favorite. Uh, we all pick our favorite piece of that adaptation. Um, and sometimes it's about physics. Sometimes it's about reproduction. Yeah, I think they're all all different aspects of it.
0: <clears throat> sometimes it's about community and nurturing and raising young and these kind of things as well. Uh, And that certainly if if we're throwing our um, fists in the ring with regards to the various components, that's always been an interest of mine as well. And I think what's fascinating here is we're getting a a smorgasbord of different ideas that can all be parts of artificial life. Or I guess in in the term simulated life, Gerald, you're really eliminating some of these Things. I mean, wet artificial life, I don't think is necessarily mm. simulated life. No, and that would make
1: the distinction. That wouldn't be simulated anymore. That would be artificial life. That would
0: But, be, but know, how about hard artificial life? Like uh, well,
1: embodied robotics or something.
0: Yes. Yeah, well, that's,
1: uh, I don't know. It's it's definitely a different category. I'm not sure uh, what it would best be called.
0: In terms of rounding up this uh, discussion and looking at other issues, uh, Justin, do you want to make any additional points?
2: I think I think I should just listen for a bit here and make sure I understand exactly, because I'm struggling to understand. To me, I, uh, what I'm trying to say is that whether it's simulated. And I, I totally agree with the fact that there's orders of magnitude difference between the physics that we simulate in virtual systems versus what happens in the real world, and that's unambiguous and unarguable. But nevertheless, I think that from an experimental perspective or from the perspective of understanding how things are unfolding, we can actually create a life form that exists inside a computer chip, and that is, has the elements of life the same way that a wet artificial life might have.
0: What's your thinking on that, Jeffrey?
3: Um, one thing I like to compare it to is artificial intelligence only in the sense of how that term and how the concept has evolved for us. Uh, When, when artificial intelligence was first introduced, it meant a certain thing. People thought of how computer and things of that, but now it's the term has, has loosened up and we can use it more freely. We refer to things as intelligent or not intelligent and perhaps the same may have Happen with artificial life. The the, de- the very definition of life might become a little bit more um, loose and flexible. Um, that's my only comment. What's your thinking, Gerald?
1: Yeah, well, if uh, I always think of Tom Ray's stuff as a sort of a, a you know a, an archetype of of real the um, real approach to having life in inside of a computer, and also something like. Um, you know, even the malicious viruses that spread around the internet. Um, yes, yeah. That that's something you could consider a, a, a kind of life. The point is actually, you know, life is something that uh, comes about as a, a sort of a response to the challenge, to a particular challenge. It's given. Uh, you, you and I have two eyes because we're. Um, we're particularly keen at uh, judging distances because we once used to jump from tree to tree you know we, we've developed the way we have because we've risen or you know life has risen to a particular challenge given a particular environment and if you think of a virus spreading around the internet it is operating in an environment that it, it is you know surviving in an environment that it's supposed to be you know that it sort of arose from in a way Um Whereas if you do, you know, spatial things with collision and, you know, 3D and, and stuff like that, then it's not life because it sort of didn't come from
3: the mm-hmm. place that it is.
1: You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of been pushed into cyberspace or it's been pushed into the computer and it's, you know, simulating something that we experience. But, um, you know, it didn't come from there and it doesn't. it's not really at home there.
3: I might even say that the that the creation of viruses might even be more of a life form than than Tierra because it grew naturally out of out of sort of human activity. they weren't they weren't trying to do artificial life, so it's even less intentional in that sense.
1: more. Absolutely. Organic. Absolutely.
3: Certainly. And I think Gerald, what you have done is
0: offer us a topic for the next Saturday matinee. Uh, recording of Biota Live because there are so many perspectives on this from the chat room Arthur Vanderbilt is writing that from this discussion what is particularly fascinating is the idea that a diversity of simulators may come together through some shared platform and actually develop collective artificial life I've always thought of that as interesting myself particularly with regards to the vending between the hard artificial life and the artificial intelligence Communities, But I think, Gerald, you started an interesting debate that I think most of us need to step away from and, and have a, a bit of a think about um, in order to continue with. I wanted to go through the participants currently on the line with regards to what they see happening in artificial life in the next decade. And I think from a historical perspective, Jeffrey, you're probably the, the best person to talk about this.
3: Where, where it's going in the next decade? yes. Well, I think it's going in many different directions. Um, the 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 piece that I made, Gene Pool, is uh, I specifically wanted it to be more educational, and it does have some some physics and things of that sort. Um, and it's it's um, it's kind of meant to inspire people to think about evolution and to, and to have fun watching it. But I also think that there are other directions, like I mentioned before, internet artificial life, which will be very much embedded in the whole. Uh, Web 2.0 environment of of web crawlers and search engines and and just basically the AI that grows out of the internet over time. So
0: this, in some regard, has both negative and positive connotations for for artificial life in the future if we start getting associated with. Uh, malware and things that are bringing down the internet and things of this nature, although it may, be, it may be very productive financially for us as well. It could be quite lucrative to be artificial life specialists going into this kind of dark cyberpunk future in some regard. Justin, what's your thinking with regards to the next decade of artificial life development?
2: I think that within the next 10 years, probably by 2012, we'll have the first beginnings of the virtual world in which core business processes for the global 500 are managed by artificial life forms across the extended value chain.
0: Mm. So you don't think that that is already happening through the Internet? You don't think the Internet is already doing some component of that?
2: Well, I think the Internet is the enabling technology that allows us to turn data into information about what's going on in our global enterprises. But really, it's only with simulation science, the mapping of the physics of reality, that we start to have a semblance of understanding around the core business processes that drive our value chains across a supply chain, for example. And then, if you realize, if you look at the work at MIT or Santa Fe Institute, human beings do a crap job of managing complex adaptive systems. Consequently, the only Mm -hmm. real benefit Or advantage is to actually turn that over to non-humans, that is the machines, and allow them to actually manage the value chains for global 1,000 companies or global 500 companies. But
0: but you're currently saying that this isn't happening in a productive sense, but it may currently be happening in a way where they're not... Uh, to, to the level of, I, I don't want to say cognizance, but in, in a means where they can actually do things in a productive way. Are we, are we part of the way there currently?
2: Like, I mean, the biggest challenge is really the interoperability between simulations. Right now, all the simulations are being developed either with integrated development environments or they're being created from scratch using whatever you know language you choose your own language that you like. And they're not able to interact. So, for example, if I've got a simulation, if I use an oil company as as an example, I've got a simulation of the reservoir, a simulation of the processes at the well, the simulation of the movement of the hydrocarbons out to, say, a boat, the transportation of that uh, hydrocarbons to the refinery, all that sort of processes, all the way out to the spot markets. Each simulation is in and of itself one self-contained environment, and they don't communicate amongst each other. What we've been working on is creating interoperability between those, Once we have the interoperability taken care of, then the artificial life form can come in and actually manage it across the value chain.
0: Okay, we have a question from the chat from Bob Mottram. He's asking whether the artificial life would actually be making business decisions in that context.
2: Define uh, a business decision?
0: Well, it's one thing to maintain information, but it's another thing to make a choice that affects the livelihood of humans. It's one thing to do I data can, mining I, and maintaining I'd like to,
1: that. I'd like to add something here um, because um, at the, the company I used to work at, we were working on um, uh, multi-agent systems and many agent systems, so Try to imagine a, to imagine a, a logistics system where um, where every package in the system and every uh, vehicle and perhaps driver and uh, whatever else is an agent in the system, mm-hmm. and they're all they've all been programmed in a in a fairly ant-like way. So sort of dumb. They're not particularly intelligent in themselves. Mm-hmm. But um, what they do is they make deals with each other, and mm-hmm. you sort of let them make deals with each other. You, you know, you you configure them up, and then you you set them off to do what they have to do. So they make decisions uh, on the fly. This this allows for some really um, uh, you know complex adaptive systems. For example, if some packages are traveling from one city to another because they've made a deal with the the, the vehicle to carry them, and then the vehicle is broken, what happens then is that uh, the the packages discover that the um, that that the, the vehicle they're in is no longer traveling, and they um, they go and make deals with other vehicles to, to travel. Also, things like, for example, the um, a, a, a vehicle might accept uh, a package and and make a deal with it to travel somewhere, and then uh, later on get a more lucrative deal for something else. In which case, it has to uh, turn back the uh, you know it has to break its contract. Um, and breaking a contract costs money. So now this package is uh, exceptionally rich and able to uh, arrange for itself some, some very trust for, uh, fast transport to, to meet its goal after all. So these, are, these small-scale decisions can certainly be made by uh, you know, sort of less intelligent algorithms than you might think.
0: Certainly, and from the chat from Arthur That's Vanderbilt, and this comes to the important ethical considerations with regards to all of this, Arthur asks with regards to future physicians using bio-simulations in medicine, and similarly with regards to um, actual uh, large-scale financial transactions and things of this nature, but the um, one that is always used in ethics is uh, artificial life robots or artificial life entities, be they AI or artificial life explicitly, that are used by the military in order to uh, subdue or kill humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I think the concern with regards to all of these things had by a broader uh, and perhaps less uh, educated in the specifics of, of what we're discussing community, the general public, for example, is that when you start to talk about human life being mediated by artificial life, either through health care or through the military, and when you talk about your personal finances being mediated by an artificial life, These are things that draw immediate ethical concern from the general public. Justin, what's your thinking with regards to this?
2: Well, there was an earlier question which I didn't really answer, which is yes, absolutely, the artificial life forms will make business decisions. Second, um, and they have to because humans do such a crap job of it. Second, the idea of having artificial life forms uh, mediate uh, with respect to, I think you mentioned healthcare and military. What's happening in the military space? They're already Project Albert with the Marines and with um, some of the other projects that are ongoing with the Joint Advanced Warfighting Program. They're looking at the use of artificial life for a whole host of different management decisions or or, or combat decisions. And in healthcare. I'm working on a project where we've already, uh, right now it's about 64,000 patient records, and we're expanding it to several uh, several million uh, across different geographic regions. Looking at having the artificial life engine actually identify patterns that drive down healthcare costs while simultaneously improving the quality of care. uh, Is it it being? Is it being? Sorry, is it being called artificial life? Absolutely. Yeah, I just gave a big talk on it. It's the it's the use of artificial life. An artificial life form which is smarter than humans in some ways. It's very, very dumb in many ways, but it's much smarter in other ways in terms of pattern recognition and stuff like that. Uh, with respect to, to exploring the treatment space, and all of these are proof of concept projects, very small projects, quarter million pound projects, but they're not they're not huge projects. But they they are they're kind of paving the way for where we might go with these technologies, and it's getting the attention of the right people. Uh, and then it's just a matter of kind of communicating it to. Other economic buyers and continuing to promulgate these ideas, expand them. I really will... sorry. Continue, Jeff. But, uh, but I, but I really do believe if you if you ever studied, a, there's a guy named Jay Forrester at MIT who developed something called system dynamics. And they were asking him. He he always commented. He's this most brittle kind of arrogant prick you'll ever meet, uh, and he's a very <laughs> tough professor. But he's also brilliant. And what he says, they were asking him is, why do people not listen to the advice that you give them uh, that comes out of your computer simulations? And he said, well, it's because they didn't grow up with computers. And as soon as they die, these things will be taken up. And that's exactly what I think is going to happen, is that the people like myself who have grown up with this, I'm 35, who have grown up with computers From my perspective i know that humans aren't are terrible at complex adaptive systems management so consequently i would much rather have computers take care of it it would you know it certainly reduce things like you know, demand amplification or the bullwhip effects in supply chains Absolutely. what you're sort
1: of saying complex adaptive systems i mean you you've, you've said twice now that complex adaptive systems are are, tip, are are badly managed by people and i'm thinking complex adaptive systems manage themselves don't they
3: which might be part of his point, but I, I think, guess. if I may add a point, I think that humans should always be the final decision makers in these things, and that our, our artificial life forms and our in, artificial intelligence systems always will help us make those decisions. I think it's I think it's um, AI um, or IA intelligence amplification as what's his name? Uh, I forgot his name. Who's, who, who who used that term rather than AI? As it's a, it's a um, cybernetic enhancement to, to, to humanity as everything else is to, to help us be the final decision makers on things. And, and, and these artificial life forms can help bring those decisions to us so that we can make them.
0: I think there's uh,
1: also something to keep in mind here. There are very, very different kinds of decisions. There are tiny decisions, there are micro decisions, and there right. are macro decisions. And I agree with you, Jeffrey, with respect to macro decisions, but I'm I'm quite convinced that uh, as, as time goes on, more and more uh, decisions will be made by, you know, m- the micro decisions. Will by the little by...
3: ants crawling around. Yes, all those little ants will make the micro decisions. Exactly. And, 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 and there will be and more and more of them.
1: And the ethics are, are the ethics in, are not, not really an issue because these things are sort of too stupid to be ethical, but they do operate quite nicely. And the the the, um, the the nice part comes from the emergent behavior when you've got large numbers of dumb things interacting with each other. That that's also more stable than something like uh, you know someone's invented super intelligent system.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, completely with what you just said. It, yeah, there's got to be about...
1: diversity. There's got to be diversity in the system, you know. And, and for example, you know, a system should consist of programs written by hundreds of different people.
3: Right. With different viewpoints. So and I'm going to play... Then you, the
1: micro, then you can trust the micro decisions to, uh, you know, little programs because everybody's
0: got their own little workers.
2: With the because... marketing jargon be... Would the marketing jargon be something like swarm intelligence or something like that?
0: Swarm has a very negative connotation with regards to locusts and things like that. I think in the general public swarm, you don't want to be part of a swarm of anything or be subjected to a swarm. There are are two points that are coming through here. I think in terms of visionary sense, we have a, a group of idealists here collected but in practical terms, uh, economics tends to play how many thousand programmers are working on a particular piece of code at any one time. I think the ethical concerns, if I may return to them, relate to how an increasingly small group of people are holding this knowledge. And in demonstrations with regards to these kind of things, and this is where Justin is at, literally the bleeding edge in terms of um, going out into into industry and government and uh, Getting them thinking about these kind of issues in a in a very positive sense, but in terms of uh, people or the general public that may look on this in a particularly negative light, uh, the history with regards to um, computerization uh, in terms of what it did to the workforce. I found this particularly growing up in Australia, particularly with a, a Luddite family that hated the thought that these <laughs> computer things were... I, I, I was the complete rebel of the family um, in this regard. In fact, in every Rebel, decision, rebel nerd. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in every decision I made, it was against my family's blessing um, in this regard. Well, in fact, in, in most regards. But the, the thing that interests <laughs> me is the way that we as intellectuals can gather together on a, a telephone call a live radio show and discuss these things indefinitely, but the thing that has shown itself, particularly in the past decade, if we look at what happened around uh, 2000, 2001, is that technical visionaries aren't always put in positions of power. I like the idea that um, the, uh, the small things, getting the little things done correctly, enables humans to think on the, the bigger things. This is the uh, dishwasher uh, metaphor with regards to technology that once you have the, the dishwasher working, once you have electric lights, once you have all these kind of things, you can sit down and play, you know, Quake Infinity for as long as you want. Um, And I like that idea in terms of artificial life developers um, going through folks, visionaries such as Justin, uh, in terms of communicating with, uh, with commerce and with government. Justin, for artificial life developers that may be listening to this program as a podcast, what advice would you give aside from contacting you directly in terms of communicating the shared vision with regards to artificial life into the next decade?
2: I think they need to participate in these forums. I think that the, I mean, I just spent about the past two days going through your source code on Noble Eight, and um, that's pretty amazing stuff. I think if they just participate on those calls and join the forums and join the biota, um, movement or whatever you want to call it. I think it's, that's where it'll come from. And then, you know, the people that are slower will catch up on it, and then eventually the journalists will start writing about it, and uh, the people that, you know, write the checks will start buying it because they figure out they can make more money, that's really all they care about.
0: I think what's interesting, if we look at the current situation, particularly with the likes of Microsoft and Craig Ventnor's. Involvement in contemporary artificial life, in terms of getting messages out to uh, the, you know through Associated Press, through the popular science community, this is something we as artificial life developers need to really think about very heavily in terms of getting our kind of collective message, which isn't currently being represented in the general public's thinking. In fact, the fascinating part of the audio that I put up, and I'm sure uh, all, all of us have listened to the uh, biota audio from uh, Will Wright's questions, was that Will Wright has a perspective on artificial life, and I talked to Bruce Dahmer about this directly, which is pre-blind watchmaker in terms of a lot of what he is thinking about. So if Will Wright, someone who we may consider as an inspirational visionary in popular culture at least with regards to the ideas that we're trying to propagate, cannot... Uh, participate in some degree in terms of the discussions that we're having currently, we need to think about firstly finding these visionaries in the broader community. Will Wright is a good example, but also folks such as uh, Gerald and my good friend Professor Dawkins in terms of people of this caliber who are willing to take the seed idea of what we are doing in artificial life and actually Communicate it to the broader public. This, in some sense, bends into next week's topic with regards to moving from books to the internet and the idea that the internet is very good if people have the prior interest or some, you know, niggling interest. The internet's wonderful if you've got a few minutes free and you want to explore a particularly obscure area, and lots of folks stumble upon artificial life resources through this very process. But in terms of a long term history, a sense of communication which seems to impact on the broader public, there is still something in the published written word which has a degree of impact. Perhaps it's academic searchability, uh, who can really tell? In terms of communication, Jeffrey, I know you've had a wide variety of experiences in terms of communicating what you were doing at any given time. Can you talk with regards to this?
3: Uh, As far as
0: communicating artificial life? Well, you've, you've had an experience both through uh, commercial companies, through academic publication, and also as an independent developer in terms of communicating your ideas, and certainly your ideas have, have filtered through popular consciousness through things like the PlayStation 3 game Flow and these kind of things, which are, are quintessentially uh, ventrella in their, uh, in their forms. Uh, what is your thinking with regards to how we actively communicate our, our collective visions out to the broader public?
3: Well I think that the game community and people who put their mind in the space of games uh, have a have a certain um, uh, uh, ability to to move on to artificial life forms because games already have agentry they have aut- autonomous pieces of code that you interact with and that helps lead, lead you to uh, higher concepts uh, and so I think gene pool and some of these evolutionary programs are 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 easy to um to, 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 to think about, and that of course leads to other thinking. Um, and so I think making Darwinian evolution more accessible and uh, communicative uh, for people is is a good thing. Um, that's my only comment.
0: But in terms of I'm not sure if you've had a chance to listen to the Wilwright audio, I mean, Will Wright is a very high level communicator in this regard and he doesn't make that communication with regards to artificial life specifically. Obviously uh-huh. your experiences at Linden Labs are very different in terms of working at a kind of a diversity of grassroots programmers that may never actually have the kind of exposure and publicity and certainly my experiences with Apple and Intel ring with that as well, that there are a number of us that in our kind of level of communication, even though we can people of the turret in order to talk on a, a live internet radio show occasionally who all share this belief the problem is actually getting someone of the level of will right or maybe pushing someone up of our elk um, who can communicate in this regard to a general audience and actually carry through this narrative which is currently being lost in uh you know collective popular consciousness
3: at the moment, he might be acting as a mouthpiece for electronic arts and, and sort of promoting the game. Um, and um, so that, that may be affecting how he's communicating. I don't know if that addresses what you're asking. Do you think there's a natural distinction that a company like Electronic Arts
0: would make, want to make with the what we are, hobbyist artificial life community? Do you think that as a commercial entity, Electronic Arts doesn't want to actually give us any lip service? Is this what you're saying?
3: Uh, no, that's not necessarily what I'm saying, but I do think that Electronic Arts has had, and this might be why it has taken so long for for sport to to come out, is that Electronic Arts has has a lot of people involved from from the uh, um, from the games industry who are very strongly um, oriented towards crafting a game um, very very. Uh, with a lot of top-down control, and so in artificial life, this is an experience I had at Rocket Science Games, um, that it's it's a whole different paradigm. Uh, Emergent bottom-up design is a difficult um, thing for a company. Certainly, Um, my
0: my experience in communicating with these uh, higher-level THQEA, these kind of companies at a higher-level management side of things, is that they are all excited by the kind of stuff that we develop as hobbyists, but the the feedback I've always received is if only there was an Artificial Life SDK if only you could gather together this kind of collective resource into something that we could easily plonk in our games that had been tested, that had, you know, the benefits in some regard of, of lots of hands on open source, all these kind of things. And certainly in my own discussion I've published on the Grayson blog with regards to this recently, if we can get together and actually create an artificial life SDK, I don't see any of the kind of vertical integration management problems occurring once we have one company like THQ or EA willing to sign up to a single, you know, not necessarily AAA title uh, that uses this engine in some regard. Justin, you were going to say something.
2: Well, what I was going to say is that I do agree. I think was it was Jeffrey that said that about the idea of a top-down design. Right, yeah. Yeah, I, I do agree that you know I listened to Will Wright's comments and it, it smacks me very much of the whole intelligent design versus evolution by natural selection debate, where Spore is nothing more than intelligent design codified into a, a game, hmm. whereas true artificial life is about creating evolution by natural selection, which might take you know days and days, of very boring you know from a gaming perspective activity.
0: Right. So I made uh, I made the point last night, and I'm not sure if. We've had the opportunity to hear last night's recording. But if you have a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters, not in any way to, to deprecate um, community online game players you will get random noise. And if you have a thousand participants creating creatures and then putting them all in a shared environment, the human becomes, the, in some regard, the natural selection pressure, although the environment itself, in terms of how they're battling or what have you, is also part of that pressure. So the idea of intelligent design, as I understand it now, particularly working through uh, Dick Gordon's book, Capital I, Capital D, Intelligent Design, Is that there is a single designer. It's not a situation where, uh, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, you know, Will Wright, Richard Dawkins, Steve Jobs get together and do the designing individually. It's with regards to a single intelligent designer. And I, would I, love
2: think... to hear, I would love to hear Dawkins' comments on what we just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you, you
0: may notice that there's a history through these recordings of me putting little jabs out in order to get the good professor's <laughs> participation. Yeah, it, right. It's in a continuous narrative. So it's subtle in some cases and not so subtle in others. But the idea that what Will Wright is doing is intelligent design, I think, is fundamentally wrong because it negates the idea that if you have thousands of participants you don't, Unless, of course, they're all using some agreed-upon rules which are completely separate, you don't actually have what the capital I, capital D, intelligent design folk are talking about, which is quite divergent if you actually explore what they're talking about in some regard. But what you have with SPORE, if you rewrite, perhaps, or look at the idea of the micro-rules of selection and how this works in kind of broader communities... Is in fact something which is probably in some road between capital I, capital D, intelligent design and, and, pure uh, evolution, probably closer to the evolutionary end just through the number of participants. So I don't want it to be thought of as a truism that when you have an individual that is designing a creature that then puts it back into an environment, you have intelligent designers, capital I, capital D intelligent designers talking about. You actually have something that's a bit different and actually quite an interesting study in and of itself in terms of how... How you know how this fits into the kind of evolutionary spectrum? Now I know, Gerald, you and I have jammed on this in the past. What's your parent thinking with regards to this?
1: Well, one one thing I I would like to say is that I don't think intelligent design even deserves airtime. Mm-hmm. Very uh, much so. Yes. <clears throat> but <laughs> uh, on the other hand, uh, a lot of what we're doing you could call intelligent design. So let's have fun doing it, but let's not. Uh, consider it to be a proof of anything or consider it to be even uh, much of an analogy of anything. We talked about this before as well. I mean, uh, you know, it, we can intelligently design all we want. Uh, we're not going to be uh, doing real evolution. So uh, so let, let's just uh, let's design some of it and let some of it evolve and, and make it mm-hmm. a, a, a working together between two things, you know, aesthetic selection, for example, it's, it's partly intelligent design, but don't draw an analogy to what happened in nature. That, that you know, That's just the God of the Gaps uh, story. It's silly.
0: Certainly. Certainly. Now, Gerald yeah. and I agree fully with regards to this. I think what interests me is the idea that there are, There are a number of evolutionary models which can be played with and experimented with, particularly with regards to social models. And this is where, um, if you talk about memetics uh, and these kind of ideas, there are a different kind of dynamic that exists when you have a a group of people communicating that continue to live, whose ideas may change, that continue to come back together. This is a different kind of evolutionary process than traditional Darwinian evolution, surely.
2: With respect to ID, you said, why would you not even give it any time? Know what you said? Why? Why would I not give it any time? Yeah, exactly. I agree with you completely, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts.
1: Well, I'm just happy to uh, to talk about what we're doing as intelligent design. That's, that's not a problem at all. But uh, to actually... Uh, you know, revive the term and say, you know, intelligent design people, the people who, you know, consider that to be the origin of biology, uh, you know, give us a break.
0: No, I agree. And this is what concerns me with regards to our use of intelligent design to mean something completely different to the capital I, capital D. Now, for the participants on the call, I need to let you know that we've actually gone into overtime, which means the call has continued to be recorded. So we can actually shell this one out for as long as we like. But if you have any reason that which you have to go, I mean, please let me know as well. But we're now still recording, I think probably for another hour, uh, but we are actually over time technically.
3: Tom, I'll be I'll be going now, so thank you okay. very
0: much. Well, thank you very much for your participation, Jeffrey.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: See you. So for the remaining participants, um, we probably uh, opened a hornet's nest too, <laughs> too close to the conclusion of the natural radio show. I'm willing to continue um, if, if you two are in some regard, but we have kind of left the uh, productive format uh, as well. Um, I think there are a number of interesting points with regards to uh, what we've raised. Gerald, do you want to conclude your uh, your thoughts with regards to this show with the view that we'll do another one in a month's time
1: well one thing that uh, that uh, we should talk a little bit more at some time with 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 bruce about is the idea of introducing um, more uh, virtual artificial life or a life whatever uh, uh, things into virtual worlds because virtual worlds are, are sort of relatively you know static right now and and that's probably something that's going to happen in the coming decade. There's going to be more and more, you know, when you're going to a virtual world, there's going to be more and more sort of stuff happening around you and hopefully on, on the basis of evolution. Uh, the stuff I'm working on right now, I'm trying to apply evolution to, uh, to architecture, specifically focusing on tensegrity. And what I found out that I'm doing is basically I'm trying to grow plants. You know, So this is, a, this is another form of, you could call it artificial life, I suppose, or a life.
0: You could be growing buildings in the near future as well.
2: That's the whole plan, actually, yeah. I thought what Gerald was saying was absolutely phenomenally interesting, and I'd really like to hear more of what he has to say, if he has time. Well, go for it. What do you want to know? What do you want me to say? Well, I mean, I, well I'd like to know a little bit more about your thoughts around you know artificial life and the implications for things like intelligent design with a capital I and a capital D.
0: Yeah,
1: well, see, uh, th- that's one thing uh, I, I would really want to stick to. Uh, you know, we can whatever we're doing in in this artificial domain. Um, I don't see it having. <clears throat> I don't see it having the slightest impact on uh, our interpretation of what happened in the context of biology. I mean, uh, the fact that we are constructing, you know, ecosystems or metabolisms or evolutionary systems, uh, we are intelligently designing things. Uh, that's a, that's a given, you know. And everybody who who um, looks to looks to, for example, my evolution stuff as a proof that evolution happened in biology is is you know barking up the wrong tree. The the analogy is just simply not strong enough. So,
0: so perhaps uh, we've Perhaps we've come full circle, Gerald, because I know you've used intelligent design in jest um, in some of your previous work. Perhaps we've come full circle and the term intelligent design for what we're doing because it's being used and misrepresented by others. Perhaps we need a different term instead of intelligent design that we use to describe what we're, what we're talking about here. I'm, um, I'm,
1: actually, I'm actually in favor of co-opting the term.
0: Ah, so a kind of guerrilla movement, which we could be doing with artificial life as well. Exactly. Ah, we've come full circle. So,
2: <laughs> in doing this, <laughs> Justin, do you have any? Do you have any final thoughts for the recording? Well, I no, I just I I think it would be a very good conversation to continue. I think there's rich material here that yet is yet to be mined, and I would enjoy very much talking about this in more detail in next. In, you know, even now or later.
0: Yeah, I, I think you, for the benefit of the recording public or the people listening to this in podcast form, their ability to participate is also critical as well. So this is if one reason why I would want to conclude this prematurely, is just to give others the opportunity to participate at some future time. So I'd like to, um, well, firstly, I'd like to plug Gerald Starwin at Home Project, Gerald. You're moving into architecture now. You're going to be pumping out new podcasts in February. Would you like to talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I spent my first day last uh, this past Friday uh, at my friend's office, which is uh, a lovely, uh, lovely architect's office overlooking the Maas River in Rotterdam, and it was wonderfully inspiring to be there to see them do their work and. Um, also to have discussions with them at, at lunch, and they were they were absolutely uh, you know fascinated by the story of evolution, which you know they obviously don't have much contact with yet. Uh, but I'm going to introduce that for sure. I'm I'm probably going to get some more attention in the architectural community, eventually, and. Um, at the same time, I was uh, I spent my first day working for the full day on, on on the software, and I made some discoveries basically by running into brick walls and discovering what I couldn't do. So uh, it's progressing well, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how far this can go in in the architectural uh, context
0: fascinating fascinating and for folks in that realm who would like to make similar offers to artificial life developers I think there is a a long queue behind Gerald that would be interested in doing the same it's actually funny if we can just continue this a little bit talking about brick walls I did a recent release of the Noble 8 simulation and it's at this point where either you're doing something productive like doing a release or planning for a release, that you actually find these brick walls more than the kind of general day-to-day tinkering, which I find particularly interesting personally. Now, Justin, February is going to be a busy month for you with regards to GreySum. Do you want to talk about some other stuff you're doing, or do you want to talk about GreySum specifically?
2: Either way, uh, Grey Thumb is coming up uh, the 20th of this month, uh, February. We'll be having it here in central London. I look forward to seeing lots of people there. And then in terms of other things that I'm working on, it's primarily uh, client work. Right, right. Happy to go into if you want to hear about it.
0: Um, well, if there's anything of particular interest to a kind of general audience you want to discuss, feel free.
2: Uh, I think one of the interesting things, there's two things I'm working on. One is a very large gas company which is struggling with uh, the complexity of their uh, machines coupled with human systems. We're actually modeling out the physics of that entire virtual system. Uh, It exists in the real world, but we're modeling it in a simulation uh, in the hopes of actually improving it. And for the military, there's a tremendous amount of work interested around less to do with artificial life and more to do with, you know, creating uh, realistic simulations in a tr- at a ray tracing level. Uh, so those are the two things I'm working on right now in the UK and the US. I, think, I, I, I tend to think that artificial life is at the point now where people like Gerald and Jeffrey and, and yourself, Tom, are kind of really at the forefront of, an emerging medium that people are finally beginning to understand. What I mean by people, I mean the economic buyers you have budgets. And so it's a it's a really good time to be you know dramatically helping our society improve itself.
0: So the next decade is looking very rosy for artificial life development.
2: I believe so personally, just based on the conversations that I've been having as I travel around the world, it's been People are from it. I still. This is why I was so intrigued by Gerald's comments. Is that I still run into occasionally fundamental philosophical, one might even say, religious issues. So I look at things like Dennett and Dawkins and their viewpoints on life and the evolution of life, and contrast that with other groups and their viewpoints, whether they're Christians or, or Muslims. And I find it to be quite an interesting dynamic with respect to sales and marketing and business.
0: Certainly, certainly. So a number of topics raised, a number of future Biota Lives to cover. We may even uh, have another one on Saturday because I think uh, Gerald's participation is particularly good out of the usual monthly cycle. Um, So I'd like to thank you both and also Jeffrey Ventrella for participating this has been Biota Live, normally recorded 8 p.m. Pacific on a Friday night, but especially today for European and East Coast listeners such as Gerald. Thank you both very much.